says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And Father, we humbly ask for, again, just the grace of God and the power of your Holy Spirit to continue now in our worship as we open the word of God as an act of submitting to the truth and the authority of your word and Lord, worshiping you by letting you speak to us as our creator, our savior, and as our God, that which we need to hear your truth. Lord, we do pray you continue to just protect us and keep us healthy as a church congregation that we can continue to honor and worship you together, Lord, that we continue to walk in faith and not by fear and be overwhelmed. And we ask now, speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, in life, one of the best ways to stay on track, I think, is to properly focus on matters that really matter most. I know that's a little bit of a tongue twister, but I think it's important that we focus on matters that really matter most. And marriage, we can tell from the scripture, is something that matters to God. It matters greatly to God. It's something he instituted very on uh, early on in creation. And therefore, we should listen to God, not to the world and not to our feelings in regards to the things of marriage. And we see God addressing marriage matters here in this section. Paul, as we began to see last time, as we got in the first part of chapter seven, in this section is directly answering questions, specific questions, it seems, that were asked of him in a letter that had been written to him from the believers at the church of Corinth. And they had written to Paul this letter. He mentions right at the beginning of verse one concerning the things you've written to me. And they asked Paul for guidance, apparently on certain things, topics like marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage and handling our sexual desires and the proper expression of those things. And clearly in chapter seven, these are topics that Paul's addressing in connection to that. We saw last time in verses one to five, he addressed the value and the importance and even the benefit of a marriage relationship 
between a man and a woman, that God who understands humanity, who he created, and the temptations that we endure because of desires within us and the pressures of this world, that God designed the marriage relationship and all that it includes, taking into consideration our human weaknesses, taking into consideration our welfare and protection, and to give us the many blessings and enjoyment that a marriage relationship supplies to a man and the woman. And we saw that one of the many benefits, and there are many, but one of the many benefits marriage gives is a proper and safe outlet for sexual desire that God has created within each one of us so that that temptation of sexual sin does not defeat us and bring us harm. In fact, God even directly addressed, as we saw, the importance of sexual expression to those who are married to even safeguard their marriage relationship from temptation and problems in that area. God taught very clearly that marriage provides a helpful solution for the natural attraction within us toward the opposite sex. That's why he said in verse 2, because of sexual immorality that exists in the world, let each man, he says, have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, as we go into verse 6 and carry on now, Paul here begins to address those who are genuinely called by God actually to singleness, to a single or celibate life. He says in verse 6, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. So as Paul addresses now the calling by God to singleness, he begins by indicating that he's advising here that remaining single, if you look in verse 6, he says, is not a command from God, nor is being married a command from God. But as he talks about remaining single, he refers to it as a concession. And a concession is basically an allowance for something that's given in response to a desire or a preference that someone has. So you have a certain preference or a desire. It's an allowance that is given. And this is how he addresses choosing or opting, you might say, to remain in a status of singleness. If it is your personal preference according to your desires. Now, again, Genesis chapter 2, in the creation of God's uh, you know, intention for mankind, generally, we might say God's broad or general design for most people, for most men and women, is that they would find a lifelong partner in a marital relationship and live together in the marriage relationship. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And then God created the woman. He brought them together and God declared, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And God commanded them there to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. So that was God's original design. Prior to sin, defiling anything in humanity, God's general broad design for most people is it is ideal for them to enter into a marriage relationship. It would be best for most, you might fairly say, to find a marriage partner. But understanding God also established a rare and special calling for some people to singleness, a select few, 
Paul therefore says in our verses here that it is not commanded that we have to marry. God doesn't command us that we must marry. There can be a concession to choose to stay single. And Paul understood that experience personally because at one point it appears that Paul himself in his earlier life was more than likely a married man. What we know from scripture as well as history and also, since marriage was a requirement to serve in the religious council of the Sanhedrin, which Paul was once a part of prior to his relationship to Christ, at one point earlier in life, it is highly likely that Paul was indeed a married man. And perhaps at some point later on, his wife has died. We don't know that. Or it could be some believe that his wife deserted him after his radical conversion to Christ. And Paul pretty powerfully transformed who he was after he was converted to Christ. So it's likely Paul was married and either his wife had died or she had deserted him and divorced him. And remember, after Paul was converted, God then put this radical, and that's an understatement, this radical church planning missionary calling on Paul's life as he went from location to location and was beaten and stoned and traveling around and going to all these hard places and planning multitudes of churches and together, it seems, with that conversion also came a spiritual calling for Paul the Apostle as a church planner to live a single life. And it seems that God attached that unique calling for his ministry function that he specifically had. And Paul clearly saw his living in a status of singleness as a true calling from God. That's why he says there in the beginning of verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I Myself, So Paul says, I wish that all could live contently as I'm living contently as a single person just serving the Lord without additional distractions of a marriage relationship or the limiting factors that come from being married with additional responsibilities. Paul says, just having the opportunity as I am to just freely serve the Lord and be led of his spirit and do what I feel God's telling me to do without attachments or other things holding me down. I can just follow the Lord in that single status. However, he says, verse seven, but he says, I realize that each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So Paul says, I realize each person has to yield to their own God-given gift and calling, but it is interesting to notice that Paul indicates that, that the content status of living single as a Christian, he refers to it, notice, as a spiritual gift received from God as a calling, an actual specific calling given from God. He refers to it in these verses as a gift from God. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus spoke there about the seriousness of the marriage commitment being something you enter into for life. And when his disciples were hearing Jesus talk about this, how you have to work through things and stay committed lifelong to that partner and remain together, some of them began to kind of stumble and say, well, well, that sounds really hard. Maybe it's better not to get married then. To which Jesus then said this, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Let anyone accept this who can. And Jesus said this, some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of God. In other words, to most, it's given to be married, but Jesus himself indicated some may have a unique gift from God to choose to make a concession to remain single for the kingdom of God's purposes and what God's plan is for their life. So in light of his own experience, 
uniquely experiencing that calling and walking it out. Paul encourages here in our verses that it is good and okay to remain in a status of being single as a Christian if that is something you are willing to make a concession and be content in doing. That's why he says in verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. That is single and content in that status. So he refers to the unmarried here, that is those without a marriage. And that could be someone who has never been married at any point in their life. Or it could be a reference to someone who at one point was married, but then maybe they've gone through a divorce and now they're in an unmarried state. He also says the same instruction is also for the widows. That is those who had a marital spouse who has died and now they find themselves in an unmarried single state because their spouse has already died. And Paul says, if that's the case, if you're unmarried or if you're a widow, he says, quite honestly, it's good if you're comfortable with it, if you want to remain single, even as I am. In other words, there's nothing wrong with it. And Paul says it can be good to be content to just live out a single existence the rest of your life, not marrying or remarrying. And later in the chapter, he will actually give some uh, instruction of some of the benefits that are attached to a single life, just like there are benefits to a married life. Paul, however, notice as we go on now, wisely warns that singleness is not something you should remain in a single status if, listen, it's going to be a perpetual distraction. If it's going to become a perpetual distraction or a stumbling block spiritually, look what Paul says, verse 9, but to the single, to the unmarried, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says, whether you have never been married, whether you're a widow and your spouse has died and you're now single, Paul says here, look, if that single status is going to be something you can't remain in content and it's going to be a constant distraction and even a stumbling block to you, then he says, honestly, it would be better to marry than to burn with passion and perpetually struggle. Notice God's word addresses here a main determining factor of if a person, listen, is called to live out a single existence in that status or if they should pursue a spouse and marry. And here's the basic premise. Has God supernaturally suppressed your desire for romantic companionship and for sexual longing? To the degree that you can remain self-controlled in the area of wanting romantic companionship and having sexual longing and being content with that without struggling is a pretty clear indicator if you're called to singleness or if you should consider seriously pursuing finding a spouse. If you are called to singleness, I thoroughly believe God will give grace to live out that single existence. God's not going to call you to live single and make you suffer and struggle because you can't be content being single or don't have self-control to be single. He'll give the accompanying grace if that's his calling to you. By the same token, look, don't over-spiritualize it. If you have desires or longings and a present attraction and a longing for romantic companionship with someone of the opposite sex and sexual desire, then let me make it simple. It's pretty obvious you should probably be married. It's pretty evident that you probably should pursue finding a spouse. He says if a single person cannot exercise self-control, that is, it's always going to be a struggle, they're wrestling, they're struggling with sexual temptation, 
He says, then it's better to marry than to constantly burn with the passion of longing and lust, always making you struggle. It's better to pursue a marriage than think somehow it's more spiritual to be a single person. And sometimes that idea can kind of creep in that there's something hyper spiritual or super spiritual about being single. Well, look, the Bible doesn't teach that. He says, look, both are, are, are just as spiritual and they often can safeguard a person if they're truly called to be married and you have the desires for it. It actually safeguards you to enter into a marriage relationship in the proper way in proper time than to struggle as a single person if that's really not God hasn't given you the grace to do. So God simplifies how we can evaluate. Hmm, am, am I supposed to stay single? Or am I supposed to get married? Well, God says, look, it's not real complicated. The presence of attraction and desire for the opposite sex is a pretty clear divining indicator. So he says, pay attention to that as you pray that through. Paul now shifts gears as he goes into verse 10 and begins to speak to those who are currently married. So he gives instructions to those unmarried and widowed and single. And now he begins to talk to the married. He says, verse 10, now to the married, those currently in a marriage, and this would be two Christians in a marriage relationship. He says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. So again, whether you are in a marriage and you're enjoying your marriage or whether you're in a marriage or you're enduring your marriage, and it tends to be one or the opposite, right? One, or the, one or the, of the two. You're either enjoying it or enduring it. To those who are currently in a marriage relationship, Paul says, what I'm now about to say is something that is a command. It's not a concession. The prior thing was a concession. He says, this is a command. Not from me, he says, but it's a command from the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying is the instruction I'm about to give comes from a direct command from Jesus on marriage. And you can see some of that in Matthew chapter 5 and 19, as well as in Mark 10. That despite how the world has little regard for the marriage relationship, Jesus has very high regard for it. And as two Christ followers, the Lord expects us to be obeying his commands in regards to marriage, not looking at the models or patterns of the world. Again, it is not about personal happiness or feelings or thoughts or opinions that we or others have. It's about obeying Jesus in this area of our marriage relationship, just like we obey Jesus in other areas that he speaks to us about submitting to his authority and navigating our marriage and upholding that commitment in obedience to the Lord. So he says, this is the command to those who are married from the Lord. Verse 10, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So God here indicates two things. His highest ideal for marriage is a lifelong marriage commitment, as well as if that commitment is violated, or if the marriage fails, or the covenant is broken or breached, what is expected of the married couple. The first thing that's evident is that God's highest ideal is that for a man and a woman who are in a marriage relationship, that they are to stay together in that marriage relationship till death do us part. He says very clearly here in verses 10 and 11 that the wife or the husband is not to depart nor to divorce their spouse. Again, the Lord commands that we are not to sever our marriage relationship, that we're not to separate that union, but to honor and uphold the marriage commitment until death releases us from it. 
So, for example, that's why, if you ever notice, during a marriage, typically we will have people say something along the lines of, for better and for worse. The whole understanding is those of us who've been married longer or marrying someone realize the honeymoon ain't lasting forever. And there are going to be times when it gets better, and there are going to be times when it may be worse than it's been when you were first dating. But for better and for worse, in sickness and in health, in richer times and in poorer times, in good times and bad times, when we're getting along or when we're struggling to get along, whether we feel like we are super compatible and just enjoy our teamwork or whether we feel like we are completely incompatible and we're constantly frustrated all the time, whether we're treating each other well or whether we have failed to treat each other well and therefore we're hurting one another and we build up walls in our relationship because of mistreating one another. Whether we are happy or unhappy, whether it's passion or not passion, whether we're enjoying the marriage or enduring the marriage, the Lord's command to us is that we are not to depart from our spouse nor to divorce. Look, it is not I do until I don't want to anymore. That's the mantra of the world. I do until I don't want to anymore because I don't feel like it anymore. It's more difficult than I expected or we've hit some bumps in the road along the way. Look, that is led by our selfishness and our pride. And that's sadly how the world operates. But as the Lord's people, we are called to a higher standard because we realize that marriage is a sacred thing. And so we want to honor that. And keep in mind, Paul's addressing two Christians here who should uphold God's will and standards because they know a little better. And they recognize the sacredness of the marriage relationship and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we seek to honor that by not departing or divorcing. What's interesting, that word that Paul uses there in verse 10, when he uses the word depart, it's a term that means to pull away and separate something that was meant to be connected or stay together. It's the same Greek term, in fact, that Jesus used in Matthew 19 when he discussed marriage and divorce, where Jesus said there, Two are now one, and what God has joined, let not man separate. There's our same term in the Greek, depart. Jesus said, let not man separate what God has put together in a sacred divine bond. And as they asked Jesus about if and when it was acceptable to divorce their spouse, Jesus specifically said, look, anytime that there's a divorce, he says it's always for one main reason, because of the hardness of the human heart. And what we tend to do in the hardening of our heart as people. And he said, but from the beginning, this was not so. In other words, it was never God's will for marriages to end, but to be upheld. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 19 quotes from Genesis chapter 2, God's origin of marriage. That's what he goes back to. He says there, Matthew 19, Jesus declares, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother be joined, the little Hebrew is welded together, you can't break a weld joint very easily, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two. They're not independent lives anymore. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, as God in the flesh, living on the earth, refers to when God instituted marriage in Genesis chapter 2 before sin ever polluted and ruined us mentally, emotionally, and spiritually in all the ways we've been broken as people. Jesus said, this is God's original command on marriage. 
that what God joins in marriage, when he puts two people together and they choose to enter into that sacred relationship, he says that no one should try and separate it, tear it apart. That's never God's heart. In fact, God says in Malachi chapter 2 that God hates divorce. Now be careful. The Bible does not say the Lord hates the divorced. And we shouldn't look at people with a stigma if they've been divorced. That's not God's heart. It says that the Lord hates divorce. That is the experience that people go through when divorce happens, right? All the pain and the hardship and the brokenness that it brings, the baggage, I mean, the the tearing and the ripping that it brings. Again, if you take two pieces of paper and you glue them together and then down the road you try and pull those two pieces of paper apart, it don't work too well. Things get stuck to one another and attached to each other. and It is a messy, messy thing that ends up being very difficult to navigate. So whether it's the two people who were married or the kids who become the collateral damage in the process that didn't sign up for the pain, but now they have to walk that out as the result of the you know, divorce of the parents. That's why the Lord hates divorce because he hates what it does to us as people because he loves us. And he doesn't want to see us experience those things. Now, one may ask, so hold on a minute. Are you telling me God says it's never acceptable, never, ever allowable for a divorce to happen? Well, I'm glad you asked because Jesus did give one allowance. He did give one allowance when divorce is permissible. And that is if you have become the victim of your spouse committing adultery against you. Jesus said in Matthew 19, that same passage on marriage and divorce, I say to you, the idea is I say to you, despite what the world does or what you feel or rationalize, whoever divorces his wife, listen, except, here's the exception, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus taught there is one legitimate reason, one legitimate basis for divorce, and that is marital infidelity. Jesus himself did give one exception to be released from your marriage relationship. And that one exception Jesus gave is that it is permissible, allowable, if you have been the victim of marital infidelity, if your spouse has committed adultery against you, knowing the pain and the betrayal and sometimes the unrepairable damage that causes to a relationship that sadly may not be something that that victim or the couple can ultimately work through because of the depth of pain and betrayal it brings, Jesus did give an allowable option in that situation to be released from the marriage, to be freed from it if that person wants or needs that in order to move forward in their life. Now, let me just say, if adultery happens, divorce does not have to be the ultimatum. And we need to be careful that we don't quickly encourage people towards that. Can we tell them, yes, there is an allowance? Yes, you have biblical permissible grounds to be released from that marriage if that's what you need after what's happened to you? Yes. But look, we want to be careful. Jesus doesn't command people to get divorced if there's been adultery. He just gives an allowance for it in a permissible way, mercifully. The Lord's heart, I believe, and highest ideal is always forgiveness, right? And healing. And restoration, if at all possible, yet after attempting to work through that pain and betrayal, if that's just not possible, Jesus mercifully gives a permissible option to divorce in that specific circumstance. Now, 
That being said, take notice, Jesus gives one specific exception, one allowance for departure or divorce that's permissible within God's will, which means this, all the other multitude of excuses and reasonings and explanations that people propose for getting divorced that they may feel are strongly justified, that people may tell them are legitimate or their emotions or reasoning may say are acceptable, are nowhere found in the Lord's teaching or in the word of God. They don't exist, which means despite how reasonable they sound and how people may argue, they are not valid basis for divorce according to the will of God. They are not legitimate basis. And it's so important that we recognize that, especially when things become difficult. Well, let me ask this, because it goes on to what Paul addresses here. What happens when people do fail in marriage? What happens when a couple does, let's say, abandon or put to the end their marriage? Well, God addresses that. What if the marriage has already failed at this point? Wait a minute, I'm already divorced or we're already separated. What do we do? Well, look what he says in verse 11. If the marriage has already failed, there's already been divorce. But even if she does depart, he says, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So in such circumstances, God says it's best to remain unmarried or to work towards reconciliation with your spouse that you have had a failed marriage together with. Sometimes, look folks, it's hard to envision it in the moment, but sometimes God just needs time with people. And sometimes if we give God time with people, he can powerfully work on hearts and restore things. If that's your situation and you've already participated in a marital failure, and we all participate to some degree, and I don't say that in any way if someone has been, you know, you know, the victim of adultery or whatever, but to some degree, you know, takes two in a marriage relationship. And I realize the greater pain and hardship can come from one person betraying and hurting someone. But if the marriage has failed that you chose to consciously enter into, let me encourage you, please, please, please do not rush into going off and trying to find yourself another spouse to cope with your emotional wounds or your loneliness. Let me encourage you instead to follow God's will on the matter, to patiently remain unmarried, put a pause on your life. And God says, remain unmarried, give God time to see what he does, or ultimately be open if it's God's plan and he can help you through a long patient process to maybe work towards reconciliation with that same spouse. You know, God has the ability to do amazing things if we give him realistic opportunity by faith and patience to wait on the Lord and to see what God may do in a given situation. Now, it is interesting to me that the Holy Spirit directs Paul in our verses here, notice, to address departing in the language of the wife. Do you see it there? Of the wife departing from her husband. And here's why I find that unique. Because I know, if you haven't already asked, it's always asked, one may ask, well, what is a woman to do if her husband doesn't commit adultery, but what if it becomes physically abusive to her? Or what if he starts to physically abuse her and the children, doing criminal acts that jeopardize their personal safety? Well, look, that is a horrible perversion of God's will for marriage as well as the family life. And to me, from what I understand of the word of God and using wisdom and stewardship, 
in love for all who are involved, listen, even the offender who may become a physical abuser in his mental derangement, for the love and wisdom of all involved, that would be an occasion where a wife for her own welfare and the welfare of her kids may need to pursue a means of separation circumstantially in order to do what is best in that given dangerous situation for her kids' welfare and her own welfare and so that her husband can get the help and the recovery that he needs as the pattern is broken of him doing something that is absolutely horrific of physically harming and abusing his wife or children. In such cases, we would advise, and I have advised, and I have assisted taking wives to police departments, that a wife in that situation either depart from the household to a safe location or make the husband depart from the household so that it becomes a safe location. And look, that is not only morally wrong, it is criminally wrong. And I have no problem when someone is violating the law, whether it is sexual abuse or physical abuse, saying, look, this is not something, oh, can't we pray and talk through it or work through it together? Yes, we can do that, but this is also a crime. It is a crime to abuse a woman. It is a crime to abuse a child. It is a crime to harm someone in a criminal act. And in that situation, God in his love says, look, I know it's complicated, but there may be a need in that situation to remove someone circumstantially for their own safety and welfare. And if that happens to someone who's been victimized, again, I think the same wisdom and scriptural teaching applies that in that kind of situation, it's best an abused woman puts her life in a holding pattern, in a pause, because there's a whole lot of healing that God needs to bring even to you if you've been subjected to that kind of horrific treatment. You need time to heal and to let the Lord minister to you and minister to your children. And these situations become very complicated and have to be navigated very slowly and patiently, very, very patiently to see what God does and if the offender truly repents and what happens and so forth. But if a woman is being physically harmed, to me, you're free to disagree. Separation to me is not wrong. It is good stewardship. It is wisdom to separate and to create a protected and safe spot. Well, after addressing marriage as a serious lifelong commitment that's not supposed to be ended, it appears Paul starts to address a few other questions that were asked of him as he goes on in verse 12. And the questions, apparently he's asking, you can tell, verse 12, but to the rest, not I say, he says, not the Lord, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. The questions likely being asked, you can tell from Paul's statements in verse 12 and 13, are questions like this. Well, they probably wrote Paul this question. Well, wait a minute, Paul. What do we do if this is our situation? When we first got married, we were both good old-fashioned Corinthian pagans. We were going to the temples and doing our pagan thing. And then after we got married, one of us got saved and met Jesus. And now one of us met Jesus and light changes happen, and now they're in love with the word of God and worshiping the Lord, and their morals and values have changed. And now all of a sudden, they find themselves unequally yoked spiritually because one loves and walks with Jesus. The other maybe doesn't want anything to do with that at this point or hasn't come to salvation yet. And it's bringing a challenge to the relationship because they're now unequally yoked spiritually. And they would ask, well, what do we do? This is difficult trying to follow the Lord. One of us wants to serve the Lord. The other doesn't really want to. 
What do we do? Or perhaps they were also asking this question. What if as a Christian, I already knew the Lord, Paul, and as a Christian, knowing the Lord, I made the mistake of entering into a marriage with a non-Christian. And I let my emotions and lusts and all those things get the best of me. And I entered into a disobedient act of becoming unequally yoked by marrying an unbeliever. And now it's really tough. Because now I'm a believer and I know the Lord and yet I've married an unbeliever making that mistake. And now it's a constant struggle. And sadly, sometimes that does happen. Sadly, sometimes that situation arises. People make that mistake. So the question would be, okay, so what do we do? Should we divorce our unsaved spouse and go marry someone who's a Christian that we'd be more yoked with spiritually and life would be better? And maybe they can go find a pagan for themselves again? Is that what we should do? Wouldn't that be best for us or for them? And Paul says, no. Paul says that would not be best. That would not be what God would want in that situation. He says, God would want you to honor the marriage relationship because your marriage is sacred. And so he says, if that would be your case, one of you got saved down the road when you both weren't saved, or even if you were a Christian and you married an unbeliever, which shouldn't have perhaps been done, but now you are married to an unbeliever and you chose that mistake that you made. Paul says here, look for both ways. He says, for the brother who has a wife that doesn't believe, or he also says for the sister who has a husband who does not believe, if he says, if the unsaved spouse, verse 12 and 13, is willing to live with you and accept your relationship with the Lord and allow you to be who you are now in Christ, then he says, let the husband or wife not divorce the unsaved spouse over the current unequally yoked situation. He says, instead, it's God's will that you now honor the marriage relationship and continue to uphold the commitment because you should make the best of that marriage to honor God as a believer in it. And look, be a daily strong testimony of what the Lord wants for your unsafe spouse. In fact, he even alludes in verse 14 to the importance of remaining in that marriage with the unsafe spouse, especially if children are involved. You see what he says in verse 14? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So the idea here, the general premise of what Paul's conveying in verse 14 there is the presence of your life now as the one Christian in that family, in that home, is a powerful influence and effect for good. He says here, it provides a sanctifying effect upon your spouse and upon your children in the family life. The idea is allowing the Holy Spirit to be at work because of the presence of your life and the Spirit's work through your life as a Christian in that home. It grants God the opportunity through his Spirit to use you to have a sanctifying or preserving effect in your family life. The idea is to keep more corruption and more defilement from entering into your home and overtaking you, your marriage, your children, or your household. Your life being lived out in that marriage as a Christ follower becomes the salt and the light that gives a sanctifying effect to your family and most of all to your children's lives because if a Christian parent, if you're the Christian parent and you're walking with the Lord, guess what that's going to do? It's going to raise the probability that your children will not become, he says, unclean, that is unclean morally. The probability of your kids not becoming unclean, but actually living a sanctified, holy life to follow Jesus like you is going to be greatly increased 
because you choose to stay in that marriage and keep following the Lord and be a Christian example to your kids and expose them to the Lord or maybe teach them the ways of the Lord or bring them to church. It's going to increase that probability of your children living for Christ. There's a much better chance because they see your faithfulness. And sometimes it takes that. And kids notice that stuff. They pay attention. They see the distinction. They see the difference. They see it's hard for you as a believer, maybe being married to an unbelieving spouse, but they recognize, wow, mom's still serving the Lord. Dad's still serving the Lord. And and that's tough. And I see it's tough for them. And it makes them begin to wonder, maybe, maybe the Lord is real. Maybe I need what they have. And it has this powerful influence and effect upon them in a wonderful way. And possibly even an effect, Paul's saying here, on your spouse's life too. Because if you glance down at verse 16, look what Paul says, why we should remain if you're an unbeliever with, or a believer with an unbeliever. He says, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The Bible says, how do you know if by your ongoing witness and example of living out your Christian life, though it's challenging, maybe now, with an unequally yoked spouse who doesn't want to serve the Lord the way that you do. He says, how do you know that as you continue to do that, if ultimately God may use you as his instrument to one day bring your spouse to salvation? He says, how do you know? That could be a powerful thing that God could work through. Consider it. The best possible chance of someone Coming to know Christ usually is by being exposed to a good, solid, strong Christian witness and example, right? Think about it. Jesus says that we're called to be the light of the world. Light is not heard, it's seen, right? It's not heard, it's seen. So Jesus says, you are a Christian. You're married now to an unbeliever, whatever the circumstance, you be light, You live for Christ, be a powerful example and a testimony, and let them see what Christ has done in your life, how he's changed you, that you're different. Let them see the benefit it brings to their marriage. Like, my life's actually better because of this Jesus thing now. My wife's much nicer to me, and and my husband is much, you know, more tender with me. And let them see the difference in a beneficial way that being married to a Christian brings to them in such a way where it begins to have an impact upon them, and they may recognize you are experiencing something that they need. And that's why Paul says, look, how do you know? You just never know your willingness to stay committed to Christ and be the best Christian testimony may be, listen, the best possible chance that your spouse will ever get saved. That may be the best possible chance they will ever come to know Jesus because of you being there with them, praying for them constantly, loving them, shining your light as an example before them. It just may be what leads them to eventually getting saved. And that's an important reason to obviously remain in that marriage. Yet, what if, here's another question likely was asked, what if the unbeliever decides they want nothing to do with this new Christian spouse now. And they say, look, I hate your Jesus thing. And they completely turn away from you because of it. Or if an unbelieving spouse in sinful and selfish pursuits completely abandons the marriage relationship and actually deserts in a selfish act, you or the family, what do you do in that situation? We'll look at verse 15. God answers the question. But if the unbeliever departs, Stay with them, live with them. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. 
a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So it appears in verse 15, my interpretation, and you are free to disagree, it appears to me that God mercifully gives a second allowance for a believer to be released from a marriage relationship when a painful thing happens, such as a believing person being, listen, abandoned by their spouse. When the marriage has been deserted by the spouse, if an unbeliever departs and abandons you, abandons the family, then God says, let them depart. If that's what they've chosen, then allow them to do such. If you've done all you can to spare and save the marriage, but they are insistent on leaving you for whatever their selfish reasonings are, if they are insistent that they are abandoning you and the family and have no regard for God or you or the children and want to be selfish, at a certain point, God says, let them depart. And he says here, a brother or sister, verse 15, he says, is not under bondage. They're no longer bound in such cases. God says the believer is liberated in that situation. They're not stuck. They're not imprisoned to have to remain in that hard spot. Now, the difficulty is this. What constitutes abandonment? Oh, that's the challenging part. What constitutes a complete departure or a desertion in a marriage relationship? You know, how do you define rightly what it means that someone has been deserted by their spouse or abandoned by their spouse? That's the difficulty. And this is where, again, I think prayer and discernment and listening to the Holy Spirit in these hard situations has to be a very patient, careful process. That you don't just say, well, you know what? We had one of them fights and he went over his mom's house and spent the night. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Deserted me. Pack it up, kids. We're out of here. Ah, it might be a stretch there. That might be a stretch. I think God is giving a merciful allowance in unique situations. And look, I have seen situations, folks, that have arisen where somebody's a believer and an unbelieving spouse who doesn't know the Lord or a spouse who maybe professed to know the Lord, but they start acting like a pagan and unbeliever and they selfishly choose for their own reasons to abandon the family, to go off to live somewhere else and go do some selfish things for months on. I mean, and just they, they literally abandon the family. And now you find that other spouse there and they feel like they're stuck. They're imprisoned. It's like they're in bondage. They have to suffer the misery of being stuck and in prison because their spouse deserted them. And God says a brother or sister is not under bondage in such situations. God says, let them depart. I've called you to be able to, to live in peace. You don't have to strive to keep trying to win them back. If they're not wanting to come back, God mercifully grants a release here in this situation. He says, for God has called us to live in peace. I think our father wants us to have a peaceful existence and to be at peace that it is okay. If something genuine like this happens to let them depart and to be opened by God's grace to move forward and not feel bound as a prisoner in a marriage that's not even a marriage anymore because you've been abandoned and left by that person. And again, what's interesting is that verse 16 says after verse 15, for how do you know a wife, whether you'll save your husband or how do you know a husband, whether you'll save your wife? Again, what is that referring to verse 15 or the prior verses 12 to 14? In some sense, it's almost like 
God is saying, look, how do we know? How do we really know, even in those hard situations, maybe even if we've been abandoned, how do we really know, honestly, whether or not God is going to use us to reach our spouse? I said, I've got, I've got, to, keep, I've got to keep chasing them. And, and God says, how do you know you're going to be the one that's going to lead them to salvation? It may be they need to go out into the world like a prodigal son or daughter and make themselves miserable, and maybe God will use someone else to reach them. God's called you to live in peace and to be peaceful. You know, I think these verses give us a great reminder that marriage is a very serious, serious thing. It's a lifelong decision, and so it should be entered into not lightly but very seriously. And when you do enter into it, you uphold it with all seriousness and a great level of commitment and devotion. And look, let me say this morning as well. If you are here and you've had a failed marriage, it is not the unpardonable sin. The blood of Jesus Christ forgives and cleanses, and the grace of God can still give you a good and wonderful future. You just bring things to the Lord. And our job as people is to continue to uphold the value of marriage. Listen, despite what politicians do, despite what the world does, as God's people, let us uphold the value of marriage because it's God's, it's God's foundation for our family and for our societies. Let's stand together.